This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Hello, and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today, we're going to make an episode out of some of the absolutely great content that we got from a panel of our Children's Hospital members, which was part of our Children's Hospital Affinity Group meeting. Now, that's an annual meeting. It usually follows SG2's Executive Summit. It focuses on children's hospitals that are members. We always focus on key pediatric trends, what our national leaders in children's hospitals are doing. And there's often presentations from the SG2 team, presentations from our members. We'll talk about our children's hospital-specific forecast. And then there's often a panel discussion. This year's panel discussion was moderated by our very own medical director and pediatrician, Dr. Maddie McDowell. You'll also hear at the end of the session, Rebecca Limestall, who many of you, if not all of you, will recognize because she moderates so much of the content that we create, particularly webinars, our executive summit, and of course, our children's affinity group. I think you'll really like where we focus. And there was some absolutely great storytelling by our members. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. I am Dr. Maddie McDowell. I'm a pediatrician by background and have been the medical director at SG2 for some years. And I spent a lot of time with our pediatric intelligence team, children's hospitals and pediatrics, near and dear to my heart. We have a great group of panelists. They are representing different geographies and representing both freestanding children's hospitals and children's hospitals within a hospital and academic medical centers. First, we have Dr. Divya Joshi. She is president of All Children's Specialty Physicians and VP Physician Services, as well as assistant professor at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Ashley Hilden, chief strategy officer and senior vice president President at Strategic Marketing for Arkansas Children's. Dr. Satyan, specific request to use just his first name. He is the chair and pediatrician in chief at UC Davis Children's Hospital. And Michelle McGuire, executive vice president and chief strategy officer, Children's National and VP International Affairs. Today's theme is going to be focusing on what are the key strategic priorities and what's top of mind for children's hospital leaders. We're going to start with the pandemic. We're one and a half years now into the pandemic with all of the uncertainties and volatility in terms of volumes. We thought we'd like to really hear from you about the strategies and maybe some of the critical success factors, lessons learned that you have deployed during the pandemic. Dr. Joshi, tell us what are some of the solutions All Children's has developed to manage particularly fluctuations in patient volumes during this time? The start I would like to share started during the pandemic when we had put a halt to our non-emergent surgical cases. When that backlog had accumulated and we opened our ORs again, we were faced with the situation we have 12 ORs, a finite number of staff and surgeons, multiple specialty procedures that take different amounts of time. We have different PPE needs. We have overtime costs. How do we manage all these different variables to reduce our backlog in a safe, fast, and financially sustainable way? And the answer we found was to input about 30 variables into a machine learning tool that we could manipulate in real time to help us with that. Well, that's very interesting. What were the teams and skill sets involved in designing that tool? 
A big component was our OR scheduling team in our system. That's one of the chief anesthesiologists who had an insight of the approximate duration for different cases. Supply chain was huge because supply chain knew where the backlog was from a PPE perspective. We also had a workforce representation so that we would be able to figure out who was available, who was out sick, and finance was a big component as well because they had to figure out if we reduce the backlog very quickly and safely, it would take overtime. Is that financially acceptable? So it was a multidisciplinary effort. That's great. Four different teams, totally different skill sets. Can you give us an example of a time that this type of a tool, data analytic, helped with planning decisions? I can give you two examples. The intent was really to help for a backlog reduction during and after the pandemic. We were successful in reducing the backlog in a safe way without breaking the bank. I can't tell you that this was a better methodology than using spreadsheets, that it was real time. So that was certainly the benefit of the tool. An unexpected benefit was to use it for strategic planning. We were approached by a dentist who wanted to do certain complex procedures on a Saturday. It just worked for him. In the past, we would have said, well, let's be nice, let's be partners. But we used the tool and input the different variables and came to the conclusion that it would be financially untenable. The conclusion is one can use it for backlog reduction, but also for smart, real-time strategic planning of OR utilization. I see that as a great example of harnessing the ingenuity within your organization to really meet an immediate need that essentially our planning tools were not necessarily nimble during the pandemic, exposed a lot of gaps. And so the ability to roll up your sleeves and develop those type of analytics, we're seeing those type of examples from across the country. Okay, Ashley, you had a little different approach, and I'd like to hear from you about how you focused on your strategy to improve operations during the pandemic. Yep, we were actually in a strategic planning process before our first confirmed case in Arkansas. When the pandemic emerged, we were in the final stages of a strategic plan. With our board, we sat down and said, is this something we want to move forward with? Do we think we can really bite this off right now? Honestly, when I look at those things that we had outlined up until that point, it was things like nursing retention and diversity, equity, inclusion efforts and behavioral health, regionalization of care, all of those things, all those critical factors that we were trying to address were exacerbated by the pandemic. The thought of stepping away or back from that was really counterintuitive to our team. We said we really have to push this work forward. There were a couple of things that happened for us. There have been some really high days and some really low days over the last year and a half. There have been days where our beds are empty. And I think that was a really new experience for most of us. There were days where we had a lot of bandwidth to really talk about and plan because operations were at a different level than what we had anticipated them to be. And there were some days where it felt like the world was moving three times faster than any of us had experienced. Implementing a strategic plan, I think we'll look back in five, 10 years and say it was one of the best decisions we made. Because it allowed our team to invest in the things that we knew were in our control to really move forward and build. There have been plenty of days where so much is out of our control. As much as we've tried to predict with the next three months, with the next three weeks, we've been right sometimes and wrong a lot of times. Being able to focus on those things that were totally in our control in terms of program development, retention, recruitment, all of those things built for us a real organizational resiliency, a real sense of control among our team that regardless of how the pandemic was going to emerge, there were some things that we could continually and thoughtfully move forward as a team. That was our experience. We've been really happy with the byproduct of organizational resiliency. 
our digital transformation efforts are cornerstone driver across our strategic plan. So we're on a digital front door journey that includes online scheduling and symptom checkers and all those things. What emerged during COVID is the need at really lightning speed for people to be able to schedule a COVID test, schedule a vaccine, all those types of things. And so it really pushed that work forward in sort of emergency way. But then behind the scenes, we also had our strategic team really pushing forward, pressure testing those processes to say, what does the long-term approach look like for online scheduling? We've just gone live with online scheduling for most of our eligible services, and we'll have everything up and running by the end of this fiscal year. I think one of the things that's important about that is the reason we've been successful is that folks at every level of our organization see the real difference it's making in people's lives. For instance, the online scheduling initiative, almost overnight at a clinic level, our scheduling team were able to see people were keeping their appointments at a higher rate than when they didn't have online scheduling. And they immediately saw how that made a more efficient approach to care from an operation standpoint, from a financial standpoint. And honestly, patients came in and said, man, I went online and scheduled my appointment and that's a really great experience for me. We talk in management a lot about strategic plans. Turns out not everyone cares about that as much as we do sometimes. But being able to connect how it made a difference on the front line in our day-to-day operation in the life of a family or a patient that had traveled 200 miles for that endocrine appointment really resonated with our team. We've really tried to lift those stories in our employee forums and our virtual town halls so that people can make those connections for themselves. So really linking that theoretical strategy to frontline care, how this is making a difference in a patient's life or in an employee's life. You've been really working hard at communicating that to build motivation. That's fantastic. A more long-term strategy approach. Now I'd like to hear from Dr. Satyan. We had talked to you originally about the fact that you had been addressing regionalization and your community partnerships prior to the pandemic, and that during the pandemic, that work really did help and pay off with the fluctuations and volumes. I was wondering if you could talk about how your strategy has evolved over time in terms of regionalization and how that specifically helped during COVID. As Ashley mentioned a minute ago, seeing patients drive 200 miles for an endocrine appointment never makes sense. We do need to provide family-centered care, and that was the goal of UC Davis Health. But of course, there were concerns. If we don't drive enough patients coming to the hospital, how do we maintain financial viability at, at the academic institution was always a concern. So we decided to check out a process where we try to staff these community hospitals with our own pediatric hospitalists and neonatologists so that care can be provided right in the community without patients having to travel to us. That was the strategy we adopted We also like to call this strategy complete and not compete with your regional partners. And that was something we had put in motion before the pandemic. And that turned out to be fairly successful through the pandemic as well. Can you talk about some of the measures you're using to quantify progress in this area? The way it works is that we have affiliations with regional uh, community hospitals and we have staffed them either with pediatric hospitalists or with neonatologists, as the case might be. 
Then we track the number of transfers coming from these institutions to the academic medical center and look at those transfers, assess their case mix index, and assess the contribution margin of these transfers. We anticipated a huge drop in the number of transfers, and there was a subtle drop because the census at these community institutions went up when the people in the area heard that there was a UC Davis pediatrician 24-7 at this organization they started coming more and more to those hospitals. And so their inpatient census went up quite a bit. Along with that, the number of transfers coming to us went down, but the case mix index of the transfers we were getting went up quite a bit, actually increasing our contribution margin, which was surprising to us, but it was a welcome sign as well. We clearly demonstrated in this example that providing family-centered care that's community-oriented can be financially viable also. And you published this, right, in the New England Journal of Medicine? That's correct. It came out in the yeah. NJM Catalyst as a publication, yes. It's called Constructive Self-Cannibalism. I love the title. The outcomes in it are really impressive. They were really able to measure the ROI on doing this type of regional strategy. I encourage you all to get this data. It'll be very helpful for you as you start to consider to refine all your regional strategies out there. Last but not least, Michelle, I wanted to ask the same question for you. Here you were in the heart of D.C. Uh, what were some of the solutions that Children's National deployed during the pandemic? We could talk about the financial challenges and our responses, the operational challenges, our, the challenges with employees. But I really want to highlight that we really decided to say, how do we become the trusted source for our key stakeholders and the people we serve? In thinking in that way, we did a lot of things to very early on build capacity to fill the gap in the community around testing, to respond to what are the questions that parents and teachers and principals and Department of Health officials are having about how to keep kids safe and get them back in school. One of the things we did at the community level is we launched a very robust catalog of webinars that we pushed out to uh, principals and teachers in our communities. We were able to very quickly uh, ramp up our equipment in our lab, and we even developed our own testing medium to avoid the lack of supply around the COVID test. And that enabled us to step in before there was a commercial market and capacity for testing we were able to start testing very early. We launched one of the first, if not the first, pediatric drive-up testing for children, for our patients, as well as their caregivers. Because if we remember, the fear was children were vectors and they were potentially infecting their caregivers, parents and grandparents. We really tried to become very early on this trusted source. We wanted to be a resource. We wanted to try and instill some confidence. One of the things that really struck us, as many of us did have to continue to come into work, and certainly our clinical peers and colleagues did, we said, how do we reach teachers and start to help be a part of getting them comfortable with that day when they may have to go back to school? We began to quickly see the impact that not being in school was having on the wellness and welfare of our kids. We started to really go to them as frontline providers and really speak to what does it mean to be working in a mission-critical profession. We held webinars and invited teachers and principals and just had any kind of host of questions, personal experiences. We addressed questions around infection control. We brought our infectious disease specialists in to educate them on the virus and the way it works. 
we really tried to go right to our community, our community physicians, our families, our patients, and the teachers and the people who care for those kids. I'm going to extend one question because I know behavioral health was on your topic. Instead of going deep into behavioral health, give me just the quick, what's the one thing that y'all have done on behavioral health that you want this group to hear about? We'll go Michelle first, Satyan, then Ashley, then Divya, just rapid fire. One of the things that has happened, and we've been fortunate and through the great work of our uh, government affairs team, is we have had some legislative success. We, to deal with the supply crisis of mental health workers, were successful in getting DC Medicaid to begin reimbursing for those extender providers, the providers that aren't just psychiatrists, but the social workers, the psychologists, the nurses, and all of the other uh, licensed frontline workers that can really be of benefit and part of the care continuum for those children suffering from behavioral health issues. We were successful in getting that coverage for those providers. That's a systematic success that will really help with managing supply and creating the infrastructure to support these children. Excellent. Thank you. All right, Satyan, rapid fire. What's behavioral health, your general stance and some of your successes? We are adopting fairly similar strategies. We are looking at two areas. One is education of the future workforce. When I trained, we had very minimal mental health training during our residency. We want to change that. And so we are embedding psychiatrists and psychologists in the resident continuity care clinics so that they can get hands-on experience with their own patients and learn from that so that they're not as dependent on mental health workforce in the future. And they are a lot more independent dealing with these issues. The second entity we are trying out is having a psychologist and a licensed mental health therapist in the clinic, in all the subspecialty clinics. We are recognizing that a child with diabetes, a child with irritable bowel syndrome has a medical component, a physical component, and a mental component as part of their illness. Having a licensed mental health therapist walk in with the gastroenterologist or the endocrinologist and dealing with the psychological aspects that the child is suffering from has been an effective tool as well. What we want to really look into is to see the financial impact of this model. We want to see if this is making the gastroenterologist much more effective is he or she be able to see more patients? We are tracking that. Hopefully next year I'll have those results out. Love it. <laughs> All right, Ashley. I'll go to just a short-term behavior change that I think we've learned a lot from related to our kids in crisis that are showing up in our emergency departments, like many of you. So average length of stay, frequency, acuity, all of those things have gone up over the last 18 months. Sometimes we can build these big plans and they take a long time to build. And if we've learned one thing, it's that we can move quicker and not everything has to be exactly fleshed out before we pick up the phone and call a partner. We actually established a biweekly call with the CMOs and CEOs of Arkansas Children's and the pediatric inpatient psych facilities in the area to simply start talking through where do we see those opportunities to optimize the flow of care from our MEMS provider to the children's hospital to community hospitals to inpatient psychiatric facilities. And what became apparent is that we all really believed in fundamentally the same principles of how that work should really happen. And there were little breakdowns along the way that in a call allowed us to address in real time. I've said often that the problem that you're solving at 2 a.m. often requires a strategic conversation at 9 a.m. This happened last night on shift in the middle of the night. We worked that process. How do we think that can work better? How can we do that quicker? How can we make sure everybody has what they need at the right point of care? 
And little things turned into big things, right? Little tweaks in our process and our flow and our communication mechanism really led us to much bigger partnership conversations. For us, it was just a huge learning across the board, even outside of behavioral health, that establishing regular communication, it's not something we did before COVID. There were quarterly big meetings and luncheons and big agendas. And now we're on the phone once a week and it's more rapid fire conversations about things that we can do together. That's great. Divya, final words there. If we were to provide the appropriate needed inpatient mental health care for the 17 counties of kids we serve, we would need 490 beds. In the next five years, we are hoping to construct a building that will not have 500 beds. We can't afford that. But ideally, a foundation-funded building that would be comprehensive. So partial inpatient, inpatient, eating disorders, abuse, all of that um, hopefully to be addressed very quickly. Thanks for listening to this episode of SG2 Perspectives. Some great insights from our Children's Hospital members. You can see a link to hear the full recording of this Children's Hospital Affinity Group session at sg2.com. And that link will be in the show notes as well. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2 Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.